Well, welcome to what I call Associate Pastor Sunday. Throughout the land, you will find that it's usually the associates who are doing the preaching, and that's true at this church. However, we also have our regular pastor who is leading us in worship, which we're very thankful for. Um, He's been preaching through something called O Long Expected Jesus. And so kind of following in that, I wanted to say a little bit about... um, the carol that we sang to begin with, O Come All Ye Faithful. This particular carol was written, we're not quite sure. Um, One uh, theory is that it was written in the 18th century by a Catholic layman. Um, It was written in uh, Latin, so perhaps you recognize the Adestes Fidelis. Um, I grew up listening to Bing Crosby sing Adeste Fidelis, and perhaps some of you did too. Um, I think you can still get it on YouTube, <laughs> you know. Um, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is that um, an anonymous Cistercian monk would sing it. They, the monks in their, um, uh, they would go ahead in their seminary or wherever it was, they would go ahead and sing it. And then the third was that uh, King John the Fourth of um, Portugal possibly also wrote it. Most Scholars, however, feel like it was the uh, Fr- the Catholic layman, Francis Wade, who wrote it. Um, but it's the traditional Christmas hymn. You never guess where it's sung. Every single time the Christmas Mass is celebrated in St. Peter's Basilica. Can you imagine that huge facility echoing with, O come, O ye faithful. I think, to me, that's a great image. Um, the song actually reproduces part of the Nicene Creed. We sang verses 1, 3, and 4. We didn't sing verse 2 because it's actually a little hard to sing. It goes, God of God, light of light, very God begotten, not created. It's a little hard to sing all of that. And then... Um, it was finally translated into the English that we sing um, by Francis o- Frederick Oakley um, somewhere around the 19th century. We're not quite sure when. Um, but it became popular. Uh, actually, we weren't... This is kind of strange to me, but um, James Joyce, who was not particularly a Christian, um, he wrote a novel called Finian's Wake. And in Finian's Wake, they are actually singing, O Come All Ye Faithful, and that's when it first became uh, popular. If you think about the song, there are actually 20 commands for us to do something, to come, and come all ye faithful. The The chorus repeats it three times, O come let us adore him. And then there are commands that, you know, sing choirs of angels, or behold him. It's a little softer when we're actually invited to adore Christ. Um, But with all of these, they are all quoting the ideas behind our scripture this morning, which comes to us from John's Gospel, chapter 1. Listen now to the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So John here is talking to 
the Jews and the Greeks. And he starts out in the beginning. Well, for us, it's a, it's not particularly something we know, but for those people, they would know it. It would be like if I say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Exactly. Or perhaps, and ask not what, you, what your country can do for you, ask what your, you can do for your country. And so when he starts out in the beginning, everybody would have said, was God. But that's not how he does it. He does, in the beginning, was the word. Because he wants to say that the word was there already. It was there before the beginning began. I know that's a little hard to understand. But he wanted to be sure that his readers knew that the word was, had always been there. It existed before creation, before even the time. And he uses the Greek word logos. Now, logos is something that's a little more than just speech. It's the idea that it's a power that was put, that comes into the world to make order out of chaos. If you remember Genesis 1, everything is in chaos. And then it gradually becomes ordered as God speaks. And that is the word that he speaks. And so for both Jews and for Greeks, for the rabbis and the philosophers, for centuries they had been talking and thinking and writing about the word or the logos. And now John comes and he says, now I will tell you who the word is. And the word was God. He was with God and he was God. Chrysostom in the 4th century tells us that it's not the word was in God, but rather the word was with God, as a person, with a person, eternally. Now, person in the ancient time is not what we think of it today. Um, Our idea of person has actually been formulated, influenced by the beginning of the 20th century when we developed the ideas of psychology but person here is not really a psychological entity rather person is distinct from human beings and so there's the divine person Jesus is the word and John tells us that he was equal with God that's kind of hard to understand it's the most basic foundations of our faith the trinity but it's hard to get a grasp on it As early as the Council of Nicaea in 325, the church has wrestled with what does this equality mean? The idea of one one nature with three persons. For me, I think Augustine in the 5th century said it best. When we think about the Trinity, think about H2O. Now, I purposely said the chemical um, formula for it because you can see it as water. We asked after all had uh, water coming down yesterday. Um, You can see it as ice. You know, when you go to get a drink or something, you've got ice in the freezer. Or you can see it as steam. Now, it's different characteristics. Water, ice, and steam. But it's all the same essence. It's all H2O. It just comes in different kinds of forms. And so Augustine was trying to help us understand what the Trinity is. The Trinity is one essence, just like water is one essence, but it comes in different forms. Sometimes we see God the Father. We see water. Sometimes we see 
God the sun, we might see ice. Sometimes we see God the Holy Spirit, we might see steam. But it's all one together. Because in Jesus dwells all the wisdom and glory and power and love and justice and holiness and goodness and truth of the Father. And it is through Jesus that we know the Father. And so John says that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then he goes on to describe what this Word has been doing. He says, through him all things were made. He's trying to talk about the work and the nature of the Son. You see, in Genesis, we go back to Genesis 1. God is creating all things. And here, John is saying, yes, God is creating all things. But it was God the Son who did the creating. He is the one who created all things. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Because the word is the very source of life. Now, this isn't just biological life, but rather it's all everything the very principle of life. Again, the Greek here is a little different. The Greek tells us that it's Zoe. You perhaps have heard Zoe. It means the life or the life principle that John uses, rather than bios, which from which we get biology, which is the idea that yes, there's life, but that's you know kind of chemical and and that's the kind of life that you would expect to study as a scientist, not the life principle that Jesus brings both the life principle and the biology of it. And so our hymn in the last verse talks about now in flesh appearing. It's hard to understand how a small babe in flesh came to be amongst us. People have wrestled with this throughout the centuries. Anselm in the 11th century wrote a wonderful um, piece called Cur Deus Homen, or basically On the Incarnation. And he addressed the question of why. Why would God come as a small baby? Because God had tried various routes in the Old Testament. If you go back, you can read about Moses and the law. You can read about how that was, how God tried to get the people of Israel to follow God's path. He tried to help them follow God's path when he helped Joshua and the various kings and um, judges to conquer their various enemies and Um, Israel he tried even exile as a rebuke to the Israelites to bring them not as a punishment but rather as a way to bring them back you know as parents we try sometimes to correct our children not because we're mean not because we want to you know punish them but rather we want to correct them and bring them into the right way of living and that's what God was trying to do But all of these things in the Old Testament didn't work. So, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came as a small baby. And why would he do that? Well, let me ask a question. Have you ever tried to relate to somebody who was totally different than you? It's really hard, isn't it? We're used to relating to people who, you know, have the same kind of values, maybe speak the same kind of language. If you've ever traveled, trying to relate to people in other languages is a little difficult. And as an American, quite frankly, I'm always embarrassed that I can only speak English. You know, I might be talking to people who speak German, Dutch, and English, or French, or Italian, but they always speak English also, which I'm very grateful for. But it's hard for me to relate to them because I don't understand their culture. I don't understand their history. I don't necessarily understand where they're coming from. So it's hard to 
be really close to somebody who has a different approach than we do. But Jesus came as a baby. He entered in the human condition. Now, each of us has been a baby, and we have grown from that. And just as Jesus will grow, he will experience all the ups and downs of life, just as we do. But he was without sin. Unfortunately, we can't quite claim that. But because he came as a child, because he came as a helpless infant, we have the opportunity to have a close relationship with him because he understands us. He knows where we're coming from. He knows what it is we're going through. And then to go back to the hymn, it reminds us that the angel choir is called upon to accompany Jesus' birth. So it's not just humans who are rejoicing, but it's also the angels who are rejoicing. It helps, us remind, it helps remind us that just as the angels sing Christ's praises, so also we are called to sing Christ's praises. Because as John tells us, Jesus is the light, and the light shines in the darkness. If we go back to Genesis 1, remember it was all darkness. Not only was it chaos, it was darkness. And God sent the light, and here again he is sending the light. God acts to send the light to the world. It's the light of all humankind. And he's speaking both of spiritual light and of natural light. And notice that it isn't that the word contains life and light, but rather that the word as Jesus Christ is the life and the light. And the light is not overcome. The light can't lose against darkness. So we're called to remember to come and adore Christ who came into the world in this particular season to bring us light in our own darkness, to bring us joy and life eternal. Since the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, we can rely on knowing that God understands us and he extends his grace to us. This is the meaning of the hymn, that now in flesh appearing to us, that now there is the coming of the Christ child, that now this is the meaning of Christmas, that God's grace has come to earth to be with each and every one of us. Let us pray. God, we thank you for sending the Christ child. We thank you that in his coming we can be assured of your grace being extended to us. We ask, God, that you would help us to remember in this time and in this season that you are the one who comes as the child and who will come as our Savior. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.